Good morning, Calvary family. I uh, look forward to being here at 11 o'clock every Sunday uh, with, with the way this worship team leads us. And it's exciting, it's energizing, and uh, we know they have a great team that's going to continue that work with us, but we're certainly going to miss Andre and Niall. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever uh, experienced a new place, a new geography, a new location, a new climate that was so different to anything you'd ever seen before and it just captivated your soul? Like you were like, oh wow, this is so amazing and so exciting. Uh, some of you know I grew up in the desert southwest, El Paso, Texas. We had mountains, but they were desert mountains. So, you know, we had all sorts of shades of orange brown, you know, but not a lot of other colors uh, where we grew up, where I grew up. And I had an opportunity one summer to go to the Pacific Northwest, to Washington and Oregon, and wow, I was just struck. I was just so amazed. I was captivated by the Pacific Northwest, so much so that after I got married to Christy, I decided to take us there for our honeymoon. She had other ideas of where she might want to go. I was like, no, no, come on, you're going to love this. And sure enough, she really did too. Uh, And one of the places that really struck me was, uh, there's so many beautiful places, but the scenic uh, place called Mount Rainier, National Park. There you can see it in the distance. It's interesting when you're driving around Seattle area, sometimes you forget that there's a huge mountain, but you might turn and suddenly, wow, boom, there it is. Just majestic and awe-inspiring. And as you drive up to to that mountain, as you see there in the photo, uh, you you come to a place called Sunrise Visitor Center. The elevation is 6,400 feet, so you're already pretty high up but there's several thousand more feet, but that's as far as you can drive. And it's in a subalpine meadow. It has stunning views. You can park there and hike. In the spring, it has vibrant colors and just majestic pines. So, you know, growing up in the desert, our trees were like this tall, right? But seeing 200 foot pines that just stretch to the sky as if they were just praising their creator. I was just so in awe of this beauty of creation in the Northwest. Um, so as we visited there, I uh, got to really be struck and impressed by it. Years later, um, I was reading a story, and I was reminded again of Mount Rainier and this visitor center. The story was by Gary Haugen. Uh, Gary Haugen is the uh, executive director and founder of an organization called International Justice Mission, IJM, and they do a lot of work around the world where they fight human trafficking. And so uh, IJM was founded by Gary Haugen, and he tells a story in this book that he wrote called Just Courage, God's Great Expedition for the Restless Christian. And in this book, he tells a story about when he was a boy and he lived in the Washington area, that his father and brothers one day, just a Saturday morning, decided, hey, let's go up and hike Mount Rainier. They hadn't planned for it, so they didn't have their camping gear, they didn't have their climbing gear, but they were gonna drive to the visitor center and just see how far they could go for that day. So as they pulled up to the visitor center, little Gary remembers uh, having a decision to make. They checked in to the visitor center, make sure the park rangers knew that they were going on a hike. And then he and his, his dad and his brothers set out onto the mountain. But Gary looked around and he said, well, wait a minute, this visitor center has great views It has really good information. You know, you could push the buttons and learn about the history of the mountain and the geography and the climate. Uh, It even has a cafeteria. Why do I want to go out there in the cold, hiking in the snow or the mud or whatever might be there when I can sit here, learn about the mountain, see it from a distance, and even get some food while I'm at it? So little Gary, you know, in his mind made a wise choice. He's like, yeah, you guys go. I'll wait for you here. Well, you can imagine how 
they weren't gone for just a few minutes. They were gone for hours. They were gone for most of the day. And so after a while, you know, he's seen the same recording, you know, several times. You know, he's looked out the same window several times. The cafeteria closes. Now he has nothing to do. And so he's just waiting and waiting. Little Gary eventually gets very bored. And he comes to ask the question, as a believer of Jesus, as a Christian, are you willing to experience the climb or are you comfortable just staying in the visitor center? And it's a great question that helped him drive forward to do the things that he's doing. But it's a question that I think echoes for all of us today. Do we want to experience it or do you just want to hear about it and stay in a safe place from a distance? Uh, after a while, his, his father and brothers came back and their faces were red from the cold air and they were exhausted. But in their eyes, there was just an excitement about everything they had experienced on that sudden climb. And then Gary stayed back. And because he stayed back, he missed out. Now, let me transition with that to say that we've just finished a series, a preaching series on the book of Hebrews. And in this preaching series, we've been talking about how Jesus is better Right? Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the Old Testament covenant. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better high priest, and on and on. And the implication is that Jesus is better than all these things, and he is worthy to be our Savior and Lord. But here's the question. As you hear, as you hear messages after messages on, on how great God is or how, how Jesus is better, it gives you great views of Jesus. It gives you good information. It maybe even feeds you spiritually well. But the question is, are you checked into the visitor center and then what are you going to do? Now what? If Jesus really is better, now what? Do you just stay there or do you go out and experience the climb? And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, uh, he, he does something remarkable, right? Jesus teaches some things that for some people there in the first century, they were like, wow, mind blown. I had never thought of it that way. Or, or Jesus reflects the character of God in a way that people were experiencing and, and they were just drawn to. They, they're saying, wow, that's amazing. I, I never thought of God that way. And so as Jesus taught, he expected his, his hearers to, to listen and to understand, Right? But you know, did you notice that Jesus never actually gives a test on what he taught, right? So how are you supposed to know if you're a good listener and a good, a good disciple of Jesus? He never gives them a test and says, okay, well, if you get 75% of the answers right, then you can go on to be disciple 2.0, 3.0, whatever, right? Jesus doesn't give that kind of test, but when he teaches, he does expect something. And you notice in Jesus' teaching that as he teaches, he expects a response, he expects a response. He expects you to do something with his teaching where it either changes your life into the direction that he wants us to walk or you have to say, well, I, I, I kind of like that, but I'm not too sure about it, so I'm just gonna keep going my way. There is no middle ground when it comes to what Jesus teaches. He says either you get it and you say yes or you get it and you say no. You can't just stay in the middle. But if you say yes, you're getting out of the visitor center and you're gonna experience the climb and you're gonna experience something remarkable and exhilarating that will change your life forever. Jesus seeks a response from his teachings. And I think the question for us today is how, how easy we grow accustomed to just hearing, hearing, and then we leave these doors or, or we, we go about our day-to-day -day life and nothing changes. If that's the case, then we're not doing this Christian thing right. Because Jesus sets an example for us that we must listen 
and respond. There's a lot of scriptures we could look at to show you that, but let me just show you one that I want to begin with this morning. I'm going to read you, uh, we're going to read from three different passages. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen or you can look at your Bible. Um, I, I did this as if you actually have a, a physical Bible, but you can also look at your Bible like this, right? Um, Matthew 10, 37 and 38. I'd like to invite you to go there first. And what I'd like to do as we read these three scriptures today is keep the question in mind that if Jesus is better, if I really believe that Jesus is better, then what? What does that mean? What kind of response does that demand from my life if Jesus is better? Matthew 10, 37 and 38 says like this, anyone, Jesus says, who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I had to start with an easy one, right? <laughs> Whoa, it's like, Jesus, this is hard teaching. What do you mean? What kind, of a, what kind of a God are you talking about where you say, we must love you more than our family? And you know, this is a first century Middle East context where family had the supreme loyalty in your life. You never turn your back on family. And Jesus here puts it, puts it in an interesting way. He says, you know, you have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength even more than your family or you're not worthy of me. And it, it challenges us just like it challenged the first century listeners, right? That if we believe Jesus is better, then we believe he's even above our family loyalties. That's a challenging, challenging call. Uh, but how does that work? What does that look like? You know, something I'd like to point out here is interesting that, you know, the God who's the creator, the maker of the universe, worthy of glory and honor, uh, who made us, you know, as, as small and insignificant as we are compared to, to the significance or the, the, the size of the universe, this God could demand our loyalty. He could say, I am God, you are not, so worship. <laughs> he, he has every right to do that. But instead, we see in the Bible, the God of the Bible doesn't demand our loyalty. The God of the Bible wins our loyalty. The God of the Bible says, I loved you so much that I sent my only beloved son so he could die on the cross and win you to me through love. So here's what that means. That means that if we believe that Jesus is better than all things, even, even, even higher than all the ones we love, then he is worthy of our highest loyalty. Jesus is worthy of our highest loyalty. I'd like for you to stop and think for a moment. How, how, many loyal, how many competing loyalties are in your life, right? What are the things that pull for your attention, that pull for your affection? And as you think about those things or those people, most of them are probably really good things, right? Like family, sons and daughters and, and jobs and things that we do. And, but Jesus says, hey, if you know me, if you believe that I'm better, then I am worthy to have your highest loyalty. That's hard. As human beings, you know, we, we don't do that perfectly. Uh, but I know that, that when Jesus tells us, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will follow in its place, uh, that's how I've seen this play out. I, I know that when I put Jesus as the highest loyalty in my life, then my family gets a better version of David Chen. <laughs> but when I don't put Jesus as the highest loyalty in my life, when I, when I forget to seek him first, when I, when I get negligent in my, in my walk with him or my time with him, my family begins to get kind of the, the leftovers of David Chen, right? Not the, not the good stuff. I don't know what the good stuff is, but you know, you, you, you see what I'm saying, right? Is that actually this principle is fascinating because when we put God as our highest loyalty, everything falls into place the way it should. And it makes us better 
husbands, better sons, better friends, better family members. It's an interesting principle, right? Put Jesus first and everything else will actually follow. But our human nature says, oh, I gotta put family first or nation first or, or job first. Hey, speaking of nation, can I do something really quick that I enjoyed doing when I was in our international church in Tbilisi, Georgia? We'd recognize people from different countries. Uh, I think today we have people from a lot of different countries. So if you don't mind, I want to kind of recognize that because that's always fun down here in the Rio Grande Valley. So let's just start with, you know, if your nationality is Texas, say Texas. Ready? Texas. All right, see, we got some Texans. That's a nationality, right? All right, okay. If it's Mexico, say Mexico. Oh, or Mexico. Mexico. Thank you, yeah. Um, Philippines? Hey, all right, Philippines. Uh, okay, what else do we have? Shout it out. Korea. Korea, yes. England, did I hear England? Yeah, all right. A very quiet England. Yes, what is it? Germany. Germany, ah, guten tag, yes. Willkommen, what else? Shout it out, yes. Brazil, Brazil. all right. And Puerto Rico, okay. Dual citizenship, fabulous. I know we have Nigeria, right? Yeah, and Ghana, yes, and a friend of ours, can I say it? Yeah, Iran, yeah, all right, good. Yeah, so I love that, right? It's, it's beautiful when we have a chance to recognize people from different nationalities. And you know, nationalities are one of those things that also demand our loyalty. And, and that's a good thing, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, if you really believe what I teach, if you really believe who I am, then I need the highest loyalty for everything else to work in its way, in its place. So if you've been listening to our series, if, you, if, you, if you've been listening to Jesus is Better, then the first challenge I have for us as a follow through is to say, is he truly worthy of my highest loyalty? Does he have my highest loyalty? Another passage I'd like to share with you um, comes out of Romans chapter 12, verses three, two, three through eight. It'll be on the screen and I'll read it for you here. It says, for, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, why do I read this passage to us today? Because a second point I'd like to share with you in response to Jesus is better, is that if we believe Jesus is better, then that means we belong to him and to his body. We belong to him and to his body, which is the church, the bride of Christ, according to the Bible. Now, I think a lot of us get the first part. Oh, we belong to God. Yeah, he's my father. I'm his child. I love that security. I love that comfort. I love that encouragement. But this other part, that we also belong to a body. We belong to, belong to a local community called the church. It's like, whoa, wait, uh, my, my individualistic 21st century American self isn't very comfortable with that. What does it mean that we belong to one another. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a deep thing that we need to work out. In, in Acts 2.42, it says that the believers shared everything that they had and they gave to each other as they had need. And because of that loving community, 
the people around them saw the grace of God at work in their lives. And they said, wow, those people treat each other differently than everybody else does. They belong to each other, they serve each other, they love one another in remarkable ways. And the Bible tells us that that's how the early church grew, as people were drawn to that kind of community. Now, I'm not sure what that means for you specifically, but we need to work that out, don't we? We need to understand, what does it mean that we belong to one another? And that God purposely placed us in a body, in a local church, so that we could be part of that body. Did you see what it said? It said that, that, that the church, the body of Christ, is like your own body. It has many parts with different functions, right? Uh, the hand functions differently than the foot, which functions differently than the brain, right? And the implication here, which we also see in 1 Corinthians 12, is that if every part of the body isn't functioning together, then you don't have a, a complete working body. And so you may belong to this church in your mind, but are you participating in a way that says, I am contributing, I am being part of this body of church believers because we belong to one another. Now to say we belong to one another is a big step. But today let's take a, at least a small step, all right? In Spanish, we like to say, or in English too, you know, when someone visits us, we like to say, mi casa es tu casa, right? My home is your home, all right? So I'm not gonna have you say we belong, you, we, we belong to each other. That's a little too deep and personal. But why don't you turn to a neighbor and say, hey, mi casa es tu casa. Okay, now, but make sure it's not your family member, because if it's your family member, then it, of course it's true. Turn to somebody else who isn't your family member. Mi casa es tu casa, all right? Wow, y'all are sharing more than just casa. All right, good. Keep it up. Uh, you know, what does it mean that we belong to one another? We need to work that out. Maybe this next verse will, will help us a little bit in fulfilling what that looks like. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, this third response to if Jesus is better, then what? In Acts 20, 35, uh, Paul is teaching here. Luke is writing, Paul is teaching. And he says that in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If Jesus is better, then that means we obey his teaching and trust his leading, such as this one, where he tells us it's better to give than it is to get. So if that's true, then the third point is that we serve out of a place of blessing. If Jesus is really indeed better, and we believe that, then we will serve out of a place of blessing. Now notice what we see here. We see that, that God allows us to serve out of blessing. Uh, way back when God begins his covenant with humanity, we see the story of Abraham. And with Abraham, he says to him, Abraham, I am calling you and I am going to bless you and I will make your name great so that you can be famous, right? No, no, no. He says, I will make your name great so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. What a huge responsibility, but what a huge promise God gives Abraham. And Abraham doesn't have to worry about how God's gonna do that. He just has to believe it, right? And receive it. In the same way, God has blessed us so much. And yet, do we serve out of that place of blessing? And do we serve deeply? Or do we give God the leftovers? Do we give God the little bit that we have remaining here and there? What does it mean to serve God and his church out of a full commitment? Side note here, I wanna say, you know, we tend to ask the question when it comes to, you know, God calling us or inviting us to give more of ourselves. We tend to ask the question as humans is, well, can I really trust God with? 
You know, can I trust God with my finances? You know, if I give, what will happen with everything else? Or if I, can I really trust God with my relationships? You know, can I really trust God with my time and energy? You know, if I give it to God, I won't have time for these other things. Can I trust God with my dreams and my hopes? Can I trust God with my life? I think it's a very natural question for us to ask. But if we are honest with ourselves and we step back a little bit, we realize, well, that's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Because we're talking about the God of the universe who is all good, all knowing, all capable, all powerful. And we're asking if we can trust him (laughs) when the question is maybe perhaps, can God trust you and me with his favor? Can he trust us with his blessing? And I thank God that he didn't wait for me to answer that question or to prove that. You know, he blesses us. He blesses us day in and day out. He trusts us with his favor. But you know, there is a, a, a spiritual principle That says, if you're faithful in the little, then God will entrust you with more. But you know, if we're not even faithful with the little that God has given us, then why would he give us greater favor? Why would he give us greater gifts? Why would he give us greater abundance? Speaking of abundance, what do you know about the Black Sea? Nothing? I I didn't either. I, I didn't know anything about the Black Sea other than this, you know, one of the seven seas or however many seas are supposed to be in the world. Uh, it's in a part of the world where I'd never known about until my family and I moved to the country of Georgia, which you see right there. Georgia is one of the bordering countries around the Black Sea. It's a kidney-shaped body of water surrounded by Georgia, Turkey, Russia, Ukraine, a couple other countries. And, and it got its name, people aren't too sure how it got its name, but one of the ideas is that Turkish sailors uh, experienced storms in that Black Sea. And when the storms would come, it would make the waters look black and ominous and scary. And they believed that, that death reigned in the bottom of the sea. And that's interesting. And it's interesting because it wasn't just a belief, it was actually some reality to it. Because geologists have said that the Black Sea first used to be just a freshwater lake about 7,000 years ago. It was a, just a water, uh, body of water, fresh lake, But then about 7,000 years ago, geologists say there was a great flood in the area and it caused the Mediterranean sea water to rise above that little land barrier between Mediterranean Sea and Black Sea and put salt water into the Black Sea and create a current that went back and forth into the two. So it became a mixture of freshwater and salt water sea. Now, what's interesting is, you know, we know about that great flood. We know it was happened in the time of Noah. And what's interesting is that Noah's Ark landed on Mount Ararat, which is in Turkey, in that very region right outside the Black Sea. But what does all this have to do with what we're talking about? Stay with me. The Black Sea, even though it's much smaller than the Mediterranean Sea, actually has more rivers bringing nutrients and abundance into it than the Mediterranean. The Black Sea has five major rivers that pour into it. Mediterranean only has three, and yet it's much bigger. And so you would think with that much abundance flowing into it, that the Black Sea would just be thriving as an ecosystem. And so here's the thing. It thrives, but only on the surface, at about 100 meters, 200 meters. Once you go beyond that, 90%, all the way down to 2,000 meters, 90% of the Black Sea is dead. Nothing can live in it. And you think, well, why? why? It has so much abundance. It has this rich organic material flowing in from these rivers. And scientists explain it this way. They say, well, there's so much coming in, the bacteria inside the sea can't break it down quick enough. So instead of it nourishing the sea, it begins to kill it. It creates something called anoxic water, which is water without oxygen. 
And instead of creating life, it creates death. It creates a poisonous gas in its depths that as a human being, if you were to take one full breath of this gas, it would kill you as well. 90% of the Black Sea full of death in its depths. Why? Because it has abundance flowing into it and it has extinguished life in its depths. Because, because it does not give out as much as it receives. There's a principle there, isn't there? Because it doesn't give out as much as it receives. Eventually, even though it might look great on the surface, eventually it has death in its depths. There's a preacher I like to listen to that says, I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing down. And I hope you're getting what I'm saying here. That abundance is great, blessing is great, but if we don't give out an equal measure as we receive or try to do that, then eventually abundance chokes the life out of us on the depths of our soul. Eventually we begin to, to not care as much or eventually we lose our passion. Um, and could it be maybe that the answer, the solution, the solution to the Black Sea would be to have a bigger opening so that more of that water could rush out and it could give more than it takes in. And the solution is the same for us. If we could balance our lives with giving out as much as we receive, then there would be more thriving life in our souls, in our depths. Could, could it be, like Gary Haugen who wrote that book, could it be that the answer to our restlessness, the answer to our boredom, the answer to our lack of passion or purpose, the answer to constantly being down on life or down on people, could it be that the answer is to serve more faithfully, it's to give more diligently in equal measure as much as we've been blessed. You know, it's an opposite principle, right? We feel like we're missing something in life, so we want to get. But the Bible teaches us, no, if you want to get, you actually got to give more. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I wish the Black Sea knew what Isaiah 58 says. It's not on the screen, so I'll read it for you. Isaiah 58 says, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. It says that if we give ourselves for, to, to give food to the hungry, to give shelter to the, to the wanderer, to see the naked and clothe them, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. There's a spiritual principle that if there's gloom in our life, if there's anxiety in our life, if there's depression in our life, you know, at the right, in, in certain moments, we need to seek counsel, we need to seek uh, medicine and therapy, but there's also times when it's just the boredom and, and the gloomy, gloominess of life that we just need to get out and give, get out and serve, and it'll balance our lives in a way where there's life again in the depths of our souls. Please note, we believe in Sabbath rest, right? We're not just talking about serving and serving and serving to where you wear yourself out, right? We believe in Sabbath rest. Uh, Rick Warren, a, a great pastor in California, says this, that we should practice the habit to withdraw weekly. You know, every week do you withdraw from your responsibilities and rest, have a Sabbath, to retreat regularly and to abandon annually, you know, to just kind of give it all up for a week or two annually so you can rest and refresh. That's important, but that's a message for a different day. What we're talking about today is that we should produce, what, what should we produce as a result of the rest and the blessing and the abiding that we have from God? Because of his blessing, there should be great fruitfulness in our lives. The Black Sea needs more outlets in order to regain life at its depths. And so the question for us to, this morning is how, 
How has God blessed you? How has God blessed you? You know, I think most of us have rivers of abundance, much more than we have trickles of trial and pain. You know, we do have trials, we do have pain, but when you stop and think about it, when we get to the Thanksgiving table every year, aren't we really surprised that, wow, my list of thankfulness is really long because we've been blessed in so many ways. We have a river of health in our lives. Maybe it's not perfect, it's never gonna be perfect, right? But if we're here today, if we can stand, if we can walk, we have a blessing of health. We have material things. Most of us have pretty much what we need. We have family and friends. We have knowledge and education. We have gifts and talents. So this, this isn't today about feeling guilty about our abundance. On the contrary, it's recognizing our abundance is a blessing from God and then growing in wisdom to lead a balanced life where we leverage our abundance and pour out to serve God and to do good to our fellow men. Now, I want to kind of bring this home a little bit more with, by saying this. It's great to serve in community. It's great to serve in all these other organizations. But what I want to remind us of today is how the Bible calls us to serve in the church. We, we belong to Christ and to his body. In Romans 12, it said that we have different gifts. And, and it showed a list of gifts, right? Prophesying, serving, teaching. It's not an exhaustive list of gifts, but it paints a picture that basically says, whatever gift you have, you're like the hand, you're like the elbow, you're like the ear, you're like the nose, and you, you bring that to contribute to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you is a part of it. You know, here at Calvary, I have the privilege of, of being a, a kind of a lead administrator over, over a lot of what we do. And I, I see a lot of needs around us. I see a lot of opportunity. And, and, and yet, you know, we, we often are missing people, right? We're missing, hey, who can do this or who can do that? And yet we know the gifts are there. God has said, hey, I've given gifts to the body. We just haven't activated them. We just haven't connected them. And, you know, and if you've tried to serve here before and you haven't gotten connected, then, then I apologize. You know, if we've done a, a bad job of, of helping you connect with your gift of service with what we, what we have, then, then I'm sorry, but let us try again, all right? Don't give up on us. Uh, keep, keep coming, keep helping, keep offering what you have. Because here's what I wanna kind of close with. God has entrusted us with much. God has blessed us with so much. And the primary reason is for his kingdom to go forward. And his primary method is through his body called the church. Uh, serve in other places, that's great. But are you willing to give the church the priority that it should have in your life? Are you willing to say, you know, I'm going to serve in this way and that way, but I want to, I want to get back to serving the priority of the church. Um, like I said, I, I see many things that need to be done, and it reminded me of this story. Uh, there's four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Have, have you met those four people? Yeah? Uh, watch Watch how this little story plays out on the screen. There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody couldn't do it, wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Are you following me? <laughs> right? We always think, well, somebody's going to do it. Everybody can do it. And so, because anybody could do it, nobody does it, right? 
It's the same in the church. It's the same as sometimes in your family when you're like, the dishes are right there. Why isn't anybody doing it? What do you want to see happen in the church? What vision or dream do you have that we could be a part of together? What is it that we could do? And, and you know, we're not inviting you to say, hey, I'll commit to the rest of my life. You know, we kind of do things here in nine to 12 month cycles, end of August to the end of May, kind of the school year cycle. What could you commit to? over the next nine to 12 months and say, you know, I want to give in this way. I want to serve in this way. I want to be part of the team. I want to get out of the visitor center and experience the climb of this mountain as the church goes forward. I want to invite you. There's, there's room for you. Not only is there room for you, but we need you. If you're a part of this body, if this is your church, we need you to get involved and to bring your gift of service. What can you do? Here's a few simple lists just to give you ideas. You can be part of a grow group whether you want to lead it or, or be, just be a part of it, because in each of these smaller groups is where you can really bring your gifts to help and serve one another. My wife and I are going to start a grow group uh, in September, uh, Sunday mornings at 9.30, because we need that. We need that community. We need that place where we can join together. Uh, join a grow group. Be part of that. Uh, volunteer time here with us in the office. You can decorate. You know, we could use you. You could design. We could use you. If you have handyman skills, we could use you. Greet people through our guest relations team. We have a great new guest relations team out there. You've seen Jeff and Gigi and others greet you as you walk in. We need more people in the greeters team. You could serve drinks at our Oikos Cafe. You could teach in our children's ministry. You could mentor our youth. You could work on cameras, sound, lighting. You could use your vocal or instrumental talents. These are just some ideas, but whatever gifts or interests you have, I'm sure there's a need and there's a place that you can plug in. Our body is not functioning complete until you and I are all engaged in the work that God has for you. So just as a reminder, if we believe Jesus is better than everything, then he demands or he, he is worthy of our highest loyalty. We belong to him and to his church and we serve him out of a place of blessing. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? Like I said, as I was preaching, that Jesus teaches us and he doesn't give us a test afterward. He doesn't tell us, hey, what do you remember the pastor said? Jesus says, how will you respond? And so what we'd like to do is give you just a couple of moments to respond. If you have the sermon notes in front of you, there's a few suggested ways there. But let's just pray and ask the Lord to give us a direction for each one of us. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time of worship that we had with you. Thank you for your word, God. Your word is, is inspiring. Your word is challenging, but your word is good. It shows us the path of life. It shows us the better ways. God, forgive us where we've failed you. Forgive us where we've grown just comfortable, perhaps complacent. God, help us to step in and step out of the visitor center and get onto the adventure of living for you, of serving you, and God, help us to do that even within this body of Christ called Calvary Baptist Church. I pray that whoever's a member here, Lord, would step into their role and would just find joy and fulfillment in doing it in a way that would glorify you, extend your kingdom, and would bless them as well.